the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic's Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome once again uh, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We enjoy our visits with you every weekend right here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. Once again, as he has on so many occasions, Alan Dempsey engineers this program beautifully, and Andrew Herdliska produces it. And uh, here in the first segment, Robert Michael Hicks. Adjunct professor of history at Belhaven University and a native of Central Floridian. He lives right right among us, folks. And we're going to talk about his new book, Few Call It War. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining me, and I hope things are well with you. Oh, my pleasure. A little sick over Christmas, but almost everybody was. Uh, Tell me what that title means, the title of your book, Religious Terrorism Then and Now. Fill us in on that, Bob. Well, on, if you look at the cover, we have, uh, I listed there all the stuff uh, that has been called the, the last decade. Things like violent extremism, right-wing fundamentalists, hate speech criminals, crazed gunmen, sleeper cell activists, and it goes on and on and on. And it's like we have called this conflict, everything under the sun, uh, the current popular one with the administration, is violent extremism. Uh, we've called it everything except war, what it is. And uh, Islamic radicalism, uh, I first came across this in 96 when uh, bin Laden issued this first fatwa against the West, and predominantly Israel and the United States, and followed that up with another one uh, in 98, uh, talking about that uh, the world needs to be dominated by Islam. So in a sense, they've declared war on us, and uh, we've just sort of been uh, fighting back with uh, drone attacks and firing Hellfire missiles to knock them off one one and two at a time. And uh, obviously that hasn't worked because we're still at it. Bob Hicks is our guest. He spent 32 years as a military chaplain and colonel in the United States Air Force, uh, uh, published over 11 books, and we're talking about his book, Few Call It War, Uh, You open your book, Bob, uh, with this topic. The blinders were on prior to 9-11. Fill us in on that. Well, certainly they were. I I was actually uh, sitting in the commander's office when uh, 9-11 hit, and uh, we'd just gone into the meeting when the first airplane had hit, and everybody still thought that was just an accident and engine failure and a plane, and when in the middle of a meeting, uh, there was a TV over in the corner of the commander's office, and the second airplane hit, and somebody just yelled out, that second one hit. And because I had taught on the subject of religious terrorism a couple of years previous to that, uh, 
I we all looked at the TV and I yelled out, "It's Bin Laden!" Mm. And with this group of high-ranking commanders all sitting around the desk, they said, "Who's that?" <laughs> and uh, that's how unaware we were. And of course, all our defensive systems were looking outward, not inward. Uh, we did not even have aircraft on alert anymore when the Soviet Union fell, and we were literally unprepared. Uh, but that's the military side. I think the real blinders we had on was uh, the blinder of political correctness, where it just wasn't politically correct to say anything wrong about a religion mm-hmm. or the individuals practicing. And I think uh, the one that I'm facing the most is a lack of competency in the national security apparatus and the DOD to even talk about religion in academic ideological terms. And this is best illustrated in Madeleine Albright's book that she wrote called The Mighty and the Almighty, where in the first few chapters she admits that nothing in her education and experience in the State Department and the Secretary of State prepared her to speak about religion around the world. And when I read that, that confirmed all my experience in time in the military, that chaplains, you, you just do the worship services and you stay in your little lane over there and, and you know you can be spiritual and you can do counseling, but please don't bring religion into things that are really important. Then you move, Bob, to this topic. This kind of terror is not new. Uh, tell us about that. Well, the first third of the book, I, I developed what I call the history of violence in all the major religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, to show that in all of our history, going back almost from the earliest years of our founders, uh, there has been violence in the name of God. And what that does, it sets up any individual guru or leader today, if they want to justify violence in the name of God, all they have to do is reach back into their sacred literature or look at some of that history of violence and say, see, it was justifiable then, and bring it into the present, and that's what exactly what I see in, is happening with radical Islam. Uh, their ideological movement of radical Islam did not begin on 9-11. Uh, it didn't even begin in the 20th century. It goes way back to the beginning of uh, Muhammad and uh, his uh, first revelations in, in Mecca and then Medina. And, of course, uh, even in our own Christian religion, when, when we uh, Judeo-Christianity... Uh, God told Joshua to go in and slay the Canaanites and take the land. So there is violence in almost in Christian Judaism, too. So uh, I think that's an important uh, bedrock delay before we really talk about modern terrorism to look at some of the history. Now, you do a chapter, Bob, called Zionists, Crusaders, and Jihadists. Uh, What are you writing there? Well, the... uh, The Crusades, certainly as Christians, we understand uh, from the 10th and the 9th, uh, 10th and 11th centuries, uh, was the first time that Christians actually took a sword and, with the authority of the Catholic Church and the Pope, uh, took on to regain property and land that had been lost and to gain ex- re- regain access to the Holy Land. And so we have to look at that history to understand the violence. My view is. Those Christian lands had been lost for almost five to six hundred years, and if you want to just argue defensive uh, just war theory rather than holy war, uh, I would say, well, why did they wait so long, <laughs> having lost so much territory that these Christian lands were? 
And, of course, in Judaism, you, as we speak, there is a right-wing radical group called, usually connected to the settlement movement. But the key element there is to uh, get rid of the Mosque of Omar somehow and rebuild the Jewish temple. And all that plays into a very radical, violent group that's uh, in Israel today, and they were responsible for the assassination of uh, Rabin, uh, one of their uh, key uh, Torah-studying students uh, was the assassin. And that group is still very there. They're marginalized. They're on the fringe of society, but they're gaining popularity. And, of course, because of the Palestinian issue, their view is there just needs to be a one-state solution, and that's Israel, and the Palestinians should be kicked out. So all these are potential areas of, uh, of uh, not only Christian, but Muslim and Jewish violence that we see going on. Uh, you do a whole chapter uh, on the Jewish fist, sanctification of the name. Uh, wh- what's that mean? Well, it started in our own country here with a uh, born and raised Brooklyn uh, rabbi uh, by the name of America Hani. And uh, he was concerned that the Jews were being persecuted continually by the Soviet Union around the world. Uh, he became pretty more and more outspoken radical about the uh, problem with the Palestinians and finally moved to Israel and started his movement called Kach, which is the uh, Hebrew word for thus saith the Lord, uh, the word for thus. And at the time that he went to Israel, about in the late 70s, uh, he was considered Meshuggah, crazy. And... Uh, Anybody that really espoused his view toward the Palestinians and that the Jewish state ought to be a Jewish state only and nothing other than that, uh, he was uh, on the fringe. If you go to Israel today, it's not uncommon to see bumper stickers that say Kahani was right. Mm. (laughs) And so uh, he was assassinated in Brooklyn, uh, actually in the front of a Marriott hotel with a connection to Islamic Jihad. His son took over the movement, and his son was assassinated, and his wife on the West Bank. And now it's Libby, his wife, that is largely uh, very much in the lead of that organization. Robert Michael Hicks is our guest, talking about his book, Few Call It War. Uh, You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Uh, We're back after this. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Uh, Bob Hicks is with us. Uh, He uh, lives locally, Central Floridian, and uh, his book is called Few Call it war, religious terrorism, then and now. Uh, Bob, uh, I want you to get into this next topic for us. Guns and Jesus, <laughs> Christian identity, and the patriot movement. What's up? Well, uh, probably the best-known person that was involved with in the patriot I- Christian identity movement, that it's called, was Timothy McVeigh. And uh, one of the messages I, I give when I speak on this is that there's no any difference between a Timothy McVeigh and an Osama bin Laden. And I raise that because uh, what there's uh, a doctrine out there, particularly in the liberal press, called moral equivalency. That all terrorists are basically the same. 
and uh, particularly the religious terrorists that use any kind of uh, commitment to Scripture or God. And so uh, I used the uh, sort of symbol of that movement as Timothy McVeigh, and I said, okay, let's really dig down deep and compare these two people. Uh, mostly, for the mostly Christian identity is racist. They're really related to the KKK. Uh, they believe that uh, there should be uh, no uh, more amendments than the original amendments of the Constitution. Uh, they believe there's no authority above the local sheriff that should have any authority of their lives, and so they're very much anti-federalism, federal government, and uh, certainly, uh, certainly have been very much anti-Obama. Uh, and so these often get put in the category of religious terrorism because they use the label Christian identity. Well, first of all, Timothy McVeigh was raised in the Catholic Church but left it He never belonged to any kind of organized religion after that. Uh, He lived off his buddies uh, even after he retired or was left the military. Uh, And all the way down the line, he attended gun shows. He lived uh, lived off the land. And in no way did he ever read Scripture, quote Scripture. His handbook, everything he did was a book called The Turner Diaries, which uh, is where he got the idea of blowing up the federal building in Oklahoma City. If we compare him to Osama bin Laden, here raised in one of the most strict Islamic countries in the world, Saudi Arabia, he had studied theology, he went to university, he was a graduate of university, he inherited millions from his father. He uh, probably, in the years that he was in both Sudan and Afghanistan, trained over 100,000 people. So, in fact, uh, one writer calls uh, his organization uh, Jihad Inc. Incorporated. So when you compare those two, and of course he was uh, Quran-quoting, lived under Sharia law, I would say he is truly a religious terrorist. Uh, Timothy McVeigh is nothing but a a mass uh, murderer and criminal. So uh, that's why I felt I needed a chapter in that book, because sometimes Christians get hooked into that ideology and being anti-government, uh, we need to take more authority and, and uh, civil disobedience. And I say, well, you may do that, but I don't think we can claim a Christian biblical justification for that. And, Bob, you then move to this topic, Christian patriots, serious activists, and stolen identity. Uh, wh- what do you tell us there? Well, that chapter uh, is, <laughs> I don't want to get too personal here in local, uh, I've been in churches or Bible studies where solid Bible-based believing evangelicals would begin to agree with some of the things that I'm seeing at the rad- on the radical right. And uh, <clears throat> probably the most sterling case was the guy by the name of Paul Hill that started out as a Presbyterian pastor, uh, was very much anti-abortion, and after reading Francis Schaeffer's book, uh, The Christian Manifesto, felt that uh, just offering opinions that, that abortion is wrong is not enough. There needed to be what he called direct action. And finally goes down to the abortion clinic and kills uh, one of the abortion doctors in a panhandle and his bodyguard. And uh, it has never uh, recanted from that. He felt God wanted him to do that, and that was the only way to send a message that abortion is really wrong. Uh, sometimes I pick up a little bit of that by dedicated Christians, and they're, and if you've read some of that material, then it, it sounds right that we need to take more direct action. And as a former pastor, I have to ask, okay, what do you mean by that? 
because uh, I lived in Alabama for a long time, and we have a lot of Bubba's up there. <laughs> and, I, and uh, you know, as a pastor, when you say from the pulpit, you know, we, we're aborting all these babies that are human, and we got to stop it somehow. And what Bubba may hear, well, I got a shotgun at home, I can stop it. <laughs> and so it's no longer what we're saying uh, is right or wrong, but even, okay, how are we going to go about getting it and, uh, and, and recognize? and recognizing a way that uh, we can do that legally, or at least some kind of direct action of civil disobedience apart from killing people. Robert Michael Hicks is the author of Few Call It War. Uh, We're talking with him about this um, very intense topic. Islamic Jihad, holy or unholy warriors, question mark. Uh, Fill us in on that, Bob. Well, certainly uh, they see themselves as holy warriors. Uh, in fact, they play that, uh, you know, if you ask, is Islam a religion of peace, they would say, well, certainly it's a, it's a religion of peace. And that's, again, you have to pursue, what do you mean by that? Uh, because in Islam, they divide the entire world into two categories, Dar al-Islam, the world of Islam, where Islam rules, and the Dar al-Harb, which is the, the world of warfare. And so technically they would say, yes, religion, uh, Islam is a religion of peace where Islam rules. But anywhere else, it is a world of warfare where jihad is the goal of instituting peace where Islam will eventually rule. Well, that sets us in tremendous conflict here. Uh, to believe that Sharia law is above all national law, civil law, because only Allah can, can issue a law that is absolute and forever. Uh, the rest are just human inventions. And so we're at a, a real ju- uh, juggernaut, I guess, uh, with that ideological teaching of Islam, if that is at the core of Islam. And I think that is the issue, because our approach has been, well, no, that jihad orientation is the peripheral of Islam. In other words, we draw a big circle, and that is Islam, and a little tiny circle outside, that, that those are the jihadists. But one of my favorite writers says, well, what if the circle of Islam, there is a core, in that, a small circle in the middle, and that is the core teaching of Islam? that it must expand to the world. And I think what we're seeing today is a revival of that core at the heart of Islam that is to be taken to the world. And, of course, there's only two founders that basically said that, that, that our teaching is to be taken to the world, Muhammad and Jesus, the last command he gave, take that message of the gospel to the world. Mm. And I think that's why when you look at the Middle East and a lot of places around the country, uh, Christians are being uh, having to leave uh, in the Middle East, so are the Jews, and that is with the goal of establishing the dominance of Islam, where it controls that territory, and unfortunately, it's happening in America as well. Now, Bob, we move to this topic, Allah's sweet revenge, black gold in the ground. Yes. Well, that's a whole book on uh, Saudi Arabia, a whole chapter on Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and the Arab states. Uh, and, and that comes from the fact that prior to the discovery of oil in the Middle East, Islam was basically a tribal desert religion. 
And I think uh, that's my understanding. And to say that, I would be guilty of blasphemy, according to the Quran, to speak anything against Islam, but to call it a tribal Bedouin desert religion. But that's really what it was. And for the most part, their people were poor. But the discovery of oil changed that. And particularly at the hands of Saudi Arabia, uh, the amount of money that they have financed for terrorism. And when George Bush... I forget the year. I think it was his, his first uh, uh, State of the Union message. Declared the axis of evil, and I had taught on religious terrorism prior to that. And he named North Korea, Iran, and Iraq as the axis of evil. I fell off the couch. Because I said, wait a minute. Saudi Arabia is the biggest funder of terrorism in the world with their ideology of Wahhabism. Mm. How come you left them off the hook and... Iraq wasn't even on my radar screen, even as a military person. So, uh, to me, we have not really dealt with that issue of how much the financing. I am told from some people uh, that I know in D.C. that about 80% of the mosques in America have been funded by Saudi money. Mm. And many of their clerics have been trained there. Well, what that means is even if you have an American-loving, moderate Muslim working a good job trying to raise their kids, and they start attending a mosque like that, they are going to be slowly radicalized to that jihadi ideology. And uh, they have no justification for living in a non-Islamic government apart from supporting or doing something in support of jihad to expand the message of Islam. And they're somewhat set up and put into attention then to embrace a more radical Islam simply because that's the kind of mosque offense. A State Department friend of mine that I have said, behind every terrorist, Islamic terrorist, is either an imam or a mosque. Your closing chapter, Bob, is, are all terrorists and religions the same? Question mark. Well, the answer to that is uh, the liberal press would like to say they're all the same, and I think 9-11 should have abolished that view totally. Uh, prior to that time, particularly on university campuses, which I got when I was in college, was the, the benevolence of all religion, that all religions are beautiful and they're all about the same thing, and we're all climbing this mountain to God. There's a lot of ways to get there. Well, 9-11 should have abolished that. But instead, it's sort of like, well, all terrorists are the same. And what I have tried to lay out in my book is that there's only two religions in the world that are absolutist, universal, expansive, and feel that they're superior to all others. Uh, Christianity and Islam are both absolutist in their biblical authority, the Quran and the Bible. Uh, I've, I've got a message I give. It's about the books, dummy, <laughs> <laughs> because that's where the both of the ideologies come from. They're both universal. They feel that every person in the world should believe in either Allah or God and Jesus Christ or Muhammad. It's global in the sense that there are there are no nation states. We don't find in the Bible the concept of a nation state other than Israel. And so as Christians, we believe Christianity is a global religion that uh, it stands on top of all nation-states, and Islam believes the same thing. In fact, they take it further, saying that Islam is the nation that is above all nations. 
and both are under the command of their founders to take that message to the world. They're expansive, and finally, each thinks the others are lesser religions, and ours is a fulfillment of everything. Uh, <laughs> and I think one of my favorite writers, Bernard Lewis, says in his book, Crisis of Islam, he said, if, when a Muslim tells the Christian that he's going to hell if he doesn't believe in Muhammad, the Christian knows exactly what he's saying. And when the Christian tells the Muslim you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus, the Muslim knows exactly what he's saying. But when either one of those two tells a Buddhist or a Hindu you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus or Muhammad, they just sort of scratch their head and have no idea what we're talking about. So in that sense, that we have a lot in common, we both believe our religions are absolute, universal, global, we need to expand it, and that ours is superior to theirs. And what that does, it puts us on a collision course uh, in, in civilization. What I think happened geopolitically is when the Soviet Union fell, we all celebrated that, that free market capitalism and freedom won the day. And that was the ideological vacuum that we were communicating to the communist world, that our ideas and values were superior to theirs. And so when it fell, we won. And what we didn't realize is what filled that ideological vacuum left by the Soviet Union was radical Islam. My, gu <clears throat> my guest has been Robert Michael Hicks, <clears throat> adjunct professor of history at Belhaven University and the author of Few Call It War. We've got more after this <clears throat> on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Bob Hicks, our guest in the first half hour, talking about his book, Few Call It War. Uh, Van Moody joins us from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he is the senior pastor and founder of the Worship Center Christian Church, and we're going to talk about his new book, The I Factor. Van, thanks for joining me. I hope things are well with you. Things are well, Pat. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So what is the I-factor? What's that mean? What's that title mean? The I-factor is how a person thinks about themselves, feels about themselves, relates to themselves. It's a combination of dynamics to, that combine to form a person's totality of their relationship with themselves. And so the I-factor is really, in a nutshell, about how we manage ourselves, how we relate to ourselves, uh, and how we live successfully from the inside out, because it starts with how we feel about ourselves and handle ourselves. Well, you open your book with this topic, more than meets the eye. How do you open? What's that mean? <laughs> well, for many people, I think what we often focus on, particularly by the world standards, uh, is that success is defined by all of the external trappings. Uh, but the reality is that there's so much more than meets the eye, meaning that the real essence of a person's life, that is not what we see externally, but it's who they are internally. And I open the book 
actually telling the story of the Titanic that a number of people are familiar with, and if they're not familiar with the intricate details of the history around the Titanic, they are at least uh, familiar with that great movie. And I tell that story of the Titanic in the open of that chapter because many people approach life uh, the way that the Titanic was created. Uh, the Titanic was a marvel of shipbuilding at that time. It had ex- every luxury that its travelers could have wanted. It was called unsinkable, but we know that the Titanic did sink, uh, and it sank because it had an iceberg. And I did a little bit of research on that iceberg, and what I found out, Pat, was that that iceberg was about 600 feet long, mm. but 500 feet of that was beneath the surface. And so what sank the Titanic was not what uh, the lookout in the crow's nest could see, that 100 feet or so above the water, what really sank the ship that was luxurious, that was a marvel of shipbuilding, was what they couldn't see beneath the surface. And so many people live life the same way. We focus on getting all of the external things right. We focus on uh, becoming a success the way that the world defines it. But what has happened um, consistently throughout history is that people sabotage themselves and they ultimately sink because of those internal dynamics that often we don't pay attention to. And so what determines whether we sink or sail in life is not what you look like on the outside. It's not whether you have all of the trappings of success, but it's who you are internally, and it's your ability to have a healthy eye factor. And that's why it is really more than meets the eye, because it's what's beneath the surface, what we often don't see, that will determine whether we sink or sail through life. Van Moody is our guest, the author of The Eye Factor. Uh, next topic for you, Van. It's time to peel the onion. Uh, what, what's, what does that mean? Well, a part of uh, having a healthy eye factor that I unpack in the book is that a healthy eye factor revolves around three critical components. Uh, your identity, uh, your sense of significance, and having the right perspective. Your identity is when you understand who you are at your core. Uh, your sense of significance is really the beginning of living a life of purpose. When you understand your value, when you understand your worth, then you can live a life of purpose. And then having a healthy perspective allows you to see the challenges that we will all go through in life as stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. And so when I deal with the fact that it's time to peel the onion, that is the process that's involved in getting to your true identity. Uh, because many of us, all of us, in fact, uh, started kind of just like an onion did. An onion, uh, at its inception, started as a seed. Uh, and we, uh, DNA speaking or biologically, also began as a seed. But what happens as an onion grows and matures is layers are applied over that seed. And the same thing happens to us. Layers of experience, layers of hurt, layers of disappointment um, really end up covering our seed, our core, our unique DNA. Everything that we were created to be, uh, our best selves was in that seed uh, out of which we were created. But oftentimes we don't live from that core or we don't live from that seed. We live from behind the layers of the things that have happened to us, the experiences, uh, some positive and, and many oftentimes are negative. And so when I tell people that it's time to peel the onion, what I want people to understand is that their best life, their best self is when they live from their core. But in order to get to that core, you've got to peel the onion. You've got to peel back the layers of all of the other things that happen to you. And just like peeling an onion in your kitchen can sting your eyes and can stink up your kitchen. Also, often 
peeling the onion of your own life involves those same kind of dynamics. Sometimes it's messy, but it's necessary. And often to get to the core of who you are, you first have got to strip away who you're not. And one of the things that I deal with in that chapter is that your who is not your do. A lot of people confuse that. When I sit down and talk to people, leaders and uh, people in all walks of life, and I begin to talk about this notion of identity and who they are at their core, it's amazing, Pat, the number of responses that I get from people who define themselves or see themselves based on what they do. Oh, I'm a mother of five, or I'm a successful lawyer, or you know, I'm, an, I'm a firefighter, or I'm a corporate exec. And what I help them understand is those are the things that you do, but that's not who you are. And so you've got to separate the two because when you know who you are and that's separated from what you do, you can lose your do or your do can change and you won't lose yourself or your sense of self-worth or significance. But when your who is connected to your do and there are obstacles or changes or adversities that are connected to your do, often we lose ourselves, uh, lose our minds, lose our happiness, lose our joy. Uh, and you see this all through history and you see this in in recent circumstances that we've all kind of watched that have happened on the national stage and the international stage. And so it's important that we peel the onion. It's important that we peel back uh, all of those layers so that we can really get to our core and live from that because that's where your best life starts and finishes. Van Moody's book is out. It's called The I Factor. And Van, I am very eager uh, to hear you talk about this next topic. The best kept secret of sustained success, what, what, yeah. do you, what do you tell us? Well, you know, one of the, the interesting things about success, everybody wants it, um, but success is not only hard to attain, but it's hard to maintain. And there is an epidemic, Pat, that has been happening recently, and if you look at history, it is all too common throughout history, and that is that there are a number of people who can get to the pinnacle of success so that they can get through the door of opportunity, uh, but they can't manage it well. And so they end up self-sabotaging. They end up forfeiting uh, the life that they've worked so hard to attain. You see it a lot with professional athletes uh, where their gift uh, has provided opportunities uh, that a lot of people only dream of. But then their character is the one that torpedoes those same opportunities that they spent their whole life trying to get. And so I really help people to understand that if we don't have healthy eye factors, it doesn't matter. Um, the door that you step through, you won't be able to maintain it. And there's a lot. Of, there are a lot of people, Pat, and it's interesting, who have asked me, man, I just don't understand why I can't seem to, to manage myself. Or, I, you know, I had this great opportunity and I blew it. And we see it. We see it and we see these episodes of professional athletes or entertainers who we marvel at and we wonder, why in the world do they – make such bad decisions that ultimately torpedo their life or their career and often end up explaining to many people, it's because they did not have the internal significance or the internal fortitude or healthy eye factor that they needed to maintain it. And that's what I deal with when I talk about the best-kept secret of sustained success. It's things like being responsible and, and the patience and obedience and the ability to navigate through fear and, and even resisting comparison and jealousy. Uh, and even living a life of humility, those are the things that will help you to maintain the doors of opportunity that many people work so hard to get through. And that is one of the secrets to sustain success. It's not so much getting there, 
but a, a life well lived is about being able to hold on to it and maintain it. Now, Van, let's move to this topic. <clears throat> your true self is your best self, you tell us. Oh, absolutely. When I talk once again about living from your core, that's what I mean when I talk about your true self. I, I love the words of William Shakespeare, who I think had his finger on the pulse of how big an issue this is when, you know, many, many years ago he wrote to that own self, be true. Your true self is literally your best self. But we oftentimes don't live from our true selves. We live from the expectations of others. Uh, we live from the pressures that a lot of people place on us day after day. Um, we want to live up to sometimes the expectations of parents or even expectations that have been passed on to us. And we pursue that only to be unhappy and to lack joy and to lack peace because all of those things are natural when you live from your true self. It is not hard to be who you uniquely were created to be. And what is so interesting about this is I've worked with a number of executives, Pat, who who end up living much of their life and, you know, they're successful in one sense of the word. They maybe earn tons of money. They have position and prestige, but they're so unhappy. And often they come to me and when we sit down and talk about it, what comes out is that the reason that they're unhappy is because while they are doing something that is lucrative, something that other people may even consider glamorous, that's not their heart's passion. And so one of the biggest things that I tell people about, particularly in the section of the book, is how do you get to your true self? And then making sure that you live from that. Things like identifying your foundation. What is the foundation of your life? What are the things that matter to you? And you've got to be very intentional to identify those things and then make sure that you operate from your foundation. Once you've identified it, the next important step is to operate from it, meaning that everything that you do has got to be congruent with your foundation. Because a part of the way that we don't live from our true self is because we live incongruent lives. But then the last thing is you got to expose your foundation, meaning the people that you do business with, the people that you interact with, they need to understand what your foundation is, and they need to see that those things are important to you because that will determine how they treat you, and that will determine whether or not they either add to the trajectory of your life or take away from it. And so when we talk about your true self as your best self, I want to encourage people to live from their true selves because that's where joy and peace really flows from. Van Moody is with us from Birmingham, Alabama. He's the senior pastor and founder of the Worship Center Christian Church author of The I Factor. Van, next topic, proof of identity. Uh, What's that? Well, remember I mentioned a moment ago that a healthy I Factor revolves around three key ingredients, your identity, your significance, and your perspective. But the interesting thing about your identity, particularly once once you put your finger on it, once you understand who I am at my core, once you peel the onion, once you've determined that you want to live from your true self, which is your best self, you have to know that your identity is going to be tested. Um, An identity that has not been tested is really not identity at all, meaning that your identity is proven often through challenges and adversity. One of the most interesting things about my own life is that I did not really become secure in who I really am until I had been tested, until I had gone through uh, challenges and adversity. Similarly, to how gold and precious metals are made, they are forged through fire. And similarly, 
your identity of who you are and who you know that you're not oftentimes is not sealed or solidified or revealed until you go through matters of adversity. And there are a number of people who try to live a pain-free life or an adversity-free life. But I've learned that that the adversity is is really beneficial. The adversity is necessary. Uh, Just kind of like athletes, sometimes you don't really know what they're made of uh, until their team is down and there's, you know, a minute left to go on the clock or uh, until they uh, were up and they lost the lead and now their back is against the wall. That's when that's when their real character, their real identity is proven. Well, the same thing for athletes is the same thing for our own lives. Our identity will ultimately be tested in a number of ways. I mean, for corporate execs, it's whether or not, you know, you will continue to, to operate your business with integrity even when you have opportunities to take shortcuts. So- My guest is Van Moody. Uh, author of The Eye Factor. <clears throat> We've got another segment with Van uh, right after these messages. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather every weekend like this and always happy when you're with us. Uh, right here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Uh, more with Van Moody right after these messages. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Van Moody is my guest from Birmingham. We're talking about his book, The I Factor. Now, Van, talk to us about the journey to significance and what that means. Uh, This is one of my favorite sections in the book, uh, Pat, because uh, I tell the story, a a biblical story, of a character that I've identified with and and, and a number of people I think identify with. And I really unpack this story to help people understand the principles involved in getting to a sense that you are significant. Um, The search for significance is a valid search. There are a ton of psychologists that have even identified that the need to be significant or to feel significant is a fundamental human need. But oftentimes we go about scratching that itch or fulfilling that need in all of the wrong ways. We go about it through our jobs. We go about it through the attainment of things. Um, but real significance is, is really found in none of those things. And that's what I really unpack uh, in this chapter. I wish that I could say that people wake up and say, you know what, I know that I'm significant. But often it's not an instantaneous understanding. There's a journey. There's a, a, a challenge of a, a series of challenges or just, you know, doing life and growing and the wisdom that's gained on the backside of it that bring us to that place where hopefully we get to the end of that journey and recognize that our significance is not in any of the wrong things, but it's in the right stuff. And so that that's one of my favorite chapters in the book. And it's one of, as I've lectured and taught on the subject, probably one of the subjects that resonate the most with people. How about this one, Van, a training ground for greatness? Where does that fit in uh, to what you're writing here? Well, yeah, the training ground for greatness uh, is really unique because I talk about how character development uh, happens in often the weirdest ways. You know, when you think about people like uh, Bill Gates and Benjamin Franklin and uh, Steven Spielberg and uh, Beethoven, uh, and all of their stories, they they do different things. They've impacted society in a number of different ways. 
um, but what is consistent about all of their lives uh, is that adversity and, and many times failure uh, was consistent early on in their life. And so I, I really unpack for people how uh, the training ground for success, that crucible out of which a great life is created, happens through failure. It happens through mistakes. It happens in all the ways that we try to avoid. Uh, a lot of people want to live a mistake-free or a failure-free life. But I help people to understand, Pat, that those are some of the greatest times in our life if we can look at them the right way and grow from them instead of simply going through them. Let's move to the next topic, Van. The biggest favor you can do yourself, uh, what is it? It's forgiveness. Mm. The biggest favor that you can do yourself is to forgive people that have hurt you, that have disappointed you, that have let you down. And so when we get into a healthy I factor and making sure that I'm whole and I'm complete and I'm healthy on the inside, one of the biggest hindrances uh, for many people is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will literally cripple you. Uh, It's very much like a cancer um, that will grow and ultimately metastasize um, in your mind and in your heart. And it will cripple ultimately your life because you end up holding on to bitterness and resentment and you place yourself in a self-imposed prison because you just cannot forgive other people. And oftentimes, Pat, the people that have hurt us and disappointed us, they have moved on from, from our lives. They have gone on and they're living okay and they're doing fine. But we are still paralyzed by what they did to us. And so I really break down and dig into what real forgiveness is because I found that a lot of people have some extreme misconceptions about real forgiveness. And uh, so that's what the biggest favor is that you can do for yourself. Now I want you to get into the next topic for us, Van. Success is an inside job, you report. Uh, how does that work? Well, first of all, it's, it's understanding that it is based on what's happening inside of you and not outside of you. So many people base their whole life on what happened to them. What happened to you or what you've been through is far less important uh, than what's happening in you. And so one of the things that I stress is how you've got to begin to dream, you've got to begin to live. And oftentimes people don't do that because they define their life by all of these external things. And so it is. It has nothing to do with who opened the door for you, who gave you an opportunity has nothing to do with who was there, who wasn't there, or, you know, what happened in the economy or within the large organization that you're a part of. It has everything to do with what's going on in you. Because all of the individuals that have gone on to achieve great things have done it in the face of adversity, but they made it because what was happening in them was still healthy. And so Pat was so fascinated about this is that you can take two people and send them through the same experience and one person come out bitter and the other person come out better. That's the power of perspective, which is why it is an inside job. And that's what I want people to understand. Well, the next thing uh, for our listeners to understand is your topic, Don't Stop Now. (laughs) Yeah, I love that because a lot of times people get weary and they get tired and they get frustrated because things don't happen quite as fast as they would like them to. And in this chapter, I really encourage individuals to, number one, keep moving. I want to motivate them to keep pressing forward. And to understand that even at times when it feels like things aren't happening fast enough, uh, there are a number of things that are happening behind the scenes. There are a number of things that are being developed in us 
that ultimately prepare us for what we're working towards. And so I, I really want to lead people away from apathy. Uh, we can be so impatient sometimes, and if it doesn't happen fast enough, we become apathetic. Uh, and that will short-circuit any dream uh, or any vision or anything you're working towards. And so I really want to help people understand that there is power in being patient, and there is purpose in the timing in which things come to pass. Van, here is uh, another topic that you write about. It's called Head First. Uh, I'd like you to explain that. Yeah. One of the things that I really believe and realize is that a head full of fears has no room to dream. And most of the biggest challenges, Pat, that people encounter, it is mental. It's how we think about something that will determine the outcome uh, of that very situation. And so the biggest battles that many people fight um, are in their mind. It's, you know, things like when we talk about self-esteem and staying motivated and being confident and staying optimistic and all of those things, those are battles that we have to fight in our own mind. I have spoken with an inordinate amount of people that say, you know, man, the greatest challenges of my life are mental. If I could just believe that things are going to get better, if I can uh, stay positive and optimistic, then I can get there. And that's what I want to encourage people to do, and I show them how to do it. I show them literally how to break out of the prison of their own mind uh, because pessimism and negativity will undermine your life. And so it is literally a head-first scenario. It's very interesting that babies come out head-first, and that's considered the right way for a child to be born. And that's also the right way for us to go into any kind of new endeavor and just to view life. We've got to go head-first. Our minds have got to be right and focused. Then everything else becomes easier. Van, what does the power of perspective mean? You write about it. Oh, yeah. It means that the way you see things is more important than anything else. As long as you can maintain the right perspective, as long as, you know, in many scenarios, people understand it by paying attention to the glass being half full instead of half empty. If you can hold on to that kind of perspective in any situation, you can move forward. Often the adversity that we face in, in life become stumbling blocks when they really are designed to be stepping stones, but we misperceive them because we have the wrong perspective. And so we see doom and gloom when it's really an opportunity for something big and great to happen. But if I'm not looking through the right set of lenses, I wear glasses, Pat, and without my glasses, I can't see adequately. That's the power of perspective. Perspective is really about the set of lenses through which you look at life. And if you have the right lenses on, you can see past obstacles and really see what's there. It's a gold mine waiting to be excavated. Van, I'm so grateful that you joined me. <clears throat> Congrats on your book, The I Factor. And uh, I wish you nothing but continued success, Van. Keep it up. Thank you, Pat. Van Moody, our guest from Birmingham, <clears throat> author of The I Factor. Uh, we've got to wrap up to the show, folks, right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Stay with us. We've got uh, a final wrap-up right after this. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Folks, thanks so much for joining me here uh, this morning on the Power Hour. 
and I'm glad that we could visit. Uh, in the first half hour, uh, Robert Michael Hicks was with us, uh, talking about his book, Few Call It War. And then uh, Van Moody joined us from Birmingham, and we got into his topic, the book called The Eye Factor. Uh, please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And my most recent book is out. It's simply called Humility, uh, The Power of a Humble Spirit. I hope you enjoy it. It's in bookstores now and Amazon.com, always a wonderful way uh, to order books. Enjoy the great weather here in Central Florida, my friends, and uh, have a great day in church tomorrow with your family and a terrific week ahead. And we'll be back next weekend for more. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at the same time where faith comes by hearing. 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.